So here's the question. When the rules we've been operating by have burnt us out and the hamster wheel is keeping us awake at night and stuck, how do we, as expert entrepreneurs who want to make significant impact but just can't take on one more thing, grow our businesses and teams, double our revenue while working less? That's the question. This is the Business Habitat. I'm Sam Dean, your host, and this show explores the answers. Stay tuned and enjoy some brave conversations. Good morning and good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Business Habitat. I'm Sam Dean, your host. I'm super excited to have fellow financial numbers powerhouse Wendy Brockhouse with us today, and we are going to talk through some numbers. Now, Wendy's on the personal side and the wealth side of numbers, but then links that also into business. I'm super excited to have her here today. I know this is going to be an amazing conversation. Wendy, welcome. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be here? Oh, awesome. I'd be happy to. Um, I am the owner of a company called Blackstar Wealth, and I've been doing this business for about 16 years. Uh, I came into the business a bit differently. I was doing consulting, so I was doing business plans, marketing plans, strategy plans. And then I started trying to say, I want to use my finance degree a bit more. And so I ended up coming into this business. And what I found was because I came as an independent from the get-go, meaning there was no one there to tell me how to do anything, I ended up making up new ways of looking at problems, new ways of solving those problems, because I wasn't trying to follow someone else's um, methodologies or ways of doing things. You know, I have, I wasn't trying to figure out, oh, what can they afford to buy? I was like, well, here's what you need and here's how you're going to pay for it. So um, I often tell people there's a couple levels. One is the first few years were tough because it felt like I was fighting my way out of a wet paper bag. But the second thing was, is no one there to tell me differently. And therefore I was able to come up with solutions that actually worked for people and focus not just on what to do. Cause I think that's what there's a ton of people ready to tell me what to do, but no one, I really want to get someone to show me how as well. I think yeah. you need that. Yeah. So that's how, and we met through um, some networking groups and some high-end coaching groups that we've been in. So yeah, that's how we, uh, that's how I ended up here today. Here today. Yeah. And it, it's so interesting. Um, I think the networking thing, but can I explore that a bit? Because particularly here in Australia, I know America's the same is that, particularly in the what we call the financial planning industry, is that there's these preconceived mm-hmm. ideas and also the compliance is so heavy on your side of the industry. And I know it's the same in the States as it is here. And that real, not only do you have, you know, the people who are licensing you, telling you what to do, but then you have also the government telling you what to do. And they're kind of trying to legislate around what fundamentally was bad behavior over here and I'm sure is bad behavior over there, you know, people investing money where it shouldn't be. So there is this very preconceived idea and then these notions that we carry forward. Is that the same over there? And then the fact that you just said what was so inspiring to me, what came out of that is that you didn't have that. (laughs) So you just made what actually worked and that. Yeah, so I'm in in Canada. We have a, a like you a couple of regulatory bodies and the government and things like that, and always always staying on side with them. Um, but it's also about um, 
figuring out what is the core of the whole thing of compliance is to make sure you're not going offside and you're doing the right things for your clients. Yeah. So if you are doing those things, it doesn't mean you ha- there's only one way to do it. There's only one way to present a financial plan. There's only one piece of software that you can use. Um, it, you know, you can be creative within those guidelines. I think of them a bit of as like a, a bit of a box or a second check on my behavior to make sure I am on side. But by no means do I consider them overly restrictive in how I look at things. Um, I'm thinking more of if I were to be working for a particular company, that they would have a certain way of doing things. Like, so in our world, it would be like I say, a Sun Life or a, you know, a captive shop where they teach their everybody, here's how you do it, this is the way, this is how you do it, versus um, the way I came in is, oh, look, I have a really wide product shelf and you get to figure out how to do it. And I think that that's such a, that's such a, uh, a reframe, isn't it? Because, mm. I mean, we work with a lot of financial planners um, and accountants who have financial planners and, you know, a lot more experts as well who are in those compliance spaces. But I think over here, financial planning is probably in the one of the most legislatively restrictive. Mm-hmm. And to look at it as a, this is my, my check on my behaviour, but apart from that, I can do, you know, what it is. It, it's kind of a nice protection piece even, you know, that and reframe actually makes you feel better about yeah. it as well. Um, and that's what I would really like to explore because, not only do we have these very heavy frames of compliance, but our the financial planning industry is a lot younger than it, than some of the other experts style of finance industries and and so if you think of law, doctoring, accounting, you know they're all coming from you know sixteen hundreds, um and that sort of thing. And then financial planning and the wealth play is something we really only saw coming in into the mid to late nineteen hundreds, yet. It comes with so many preconceived ideas, not just from the companies and the legislative things, but our whole framework of what mm-hmm. is enough, the fears that actually, you know, drive us with money. And I think a lot of that may have come from the fact that it's a bit younger and, you know, w- what do we actually need in this very consumer-driven world that we live in? Mm-hmm. So what I would love to ask you is, you know, really around what is enough how do you look at that? And then what are the fears that you see that stop us getting it? It's not, not so much stop us getting that, but the problem is, is that we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but it's how we live with our everyday fears of money that actually is what, where our struggle sits. It's not actually with will we end up with enough or not, because sometimes we can't actually control that. COVID's happen. You know, what's happening in the Ukraine happens, things that uh, completely out of control can happen. But if we're struggling every day with these fears, that's that's kind of what I'd like to explore here. So I know you have a great way to, to work out what's enough. Let's start there. Well, I'm going to go to 30,000 foot view for just a second before we get there. And that is, I think there's sometimes this notion that if you have an investment plan, that you have a financial plan. And I would like to say oh. that an investment plan is actually to some degree about 25% of your plan. Okay, because you also need to have a spending plan, an insurance plan, which I like to call a safety net plan, and a debt reduction if you have unwanted debt, and then you also have investments. And one of the things I often say is it's very, very difficult to have your investments out-earn a spending problem. So all these things need to work together. 
Okay. So I just want to clear that because sometimes I think when we talk about financial plan, we automatically go to, well, should I be in ETFs? Should I be, what markets should I be in? What sectors should I be in? Uh, I think that's uh, something that has to be discussed and worked on, but it's, it's just part of your plan. Does that make sense? I love that. Can I, can I quote you back there? Yes, please. That no great investment plan can outdo a spending problem. That's right. And we see this so much in businesses as well. 48% mm. these American stats, Canada and, and Australia doesn't have nearly as good as data as, as what America does, obviously, with the size. But 48% um, of businesses that go into bankruptcy in, in America are good businesses. It's actually the spending problem that sends them there. Yeah. So, you know, people wanting to earn 300000 but the business is making one hundred fifty. Um, that sort of thing. So it's the same because your business is your, an investment as well. And so no great business can outdo a, a spending problem as well. So it's, um, yeah. and it's so true. And yeah, people do worry about that. And I hear them talking about it, but yet they're driving cars that cost a gazillion dollars. Right. I've seen more financial plans fail because of a second vehicle or an overpriced vehicle than I have from yeah. investments tanking, especially if we have lots of time to get them to come back, right? So yeah. I think it's a reframe of how we look at that planning piece is important. Um, and when you do that too, let's if we drop into fears for a second there, Sam, is that I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, as does a lot of outside commentary that we should be managing our own investments. So then that ends up keeping us from actually doing anything because we actually, we're like, okay, now, where am I going to go learn this? How am I going to decide this? So we've made it into this great big problem when in fact there are people who can do that for you at way less cost to yourself in terms of time and effort. Because if your time is worth money, you have to analyze that versus the outcome that someone who's actually does this full time does it. So I'll throw that in there um, from a fear perspective. If I can't understand it a hundred percent, that means I'm not going to do anything. Because mm. I just got rid of my self-managed super fund over here. Everyone says, oh, self-managed. Um, there's, there's a time and place, but I have no interest in managing my own investments and stuff and, and it gets in the way and in, in the compliance in that. So a managed fund and everyone goes, oh, but they charge these fees. And I'm going, they're nothing compared to the time and the effort. And it's true. Uh, you know, what you're saying here as well is get experts to do what experts do. Now, if you enjoy it and you love it and you have a passion about it, different. Totally different. But I would wager that's a small percentage. Very small percent. Um, and it is such a complex thing. And it's like any expertise. Mm -hmm. You've got to go narrow. You know, you can't be this generalist and it would be, you know, interesting some of the return on investments, you know, people saying, oh, well, I don't want to pay this person $3,000 a year or whatever that is. But if you look at it over time, how much that costs you, I mean, $3,000 is reasonably easy to earn for, for a lot of experts. So just pay the, pay the dude or the girl in this case, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And there are some studies out there now. It would be based on probably North American price structures compared to your price structures, which are different. But um, the percentage difference in the net worth of someone doing it by themselves versus working with a professional is massively significant, like seven to eight times the net worth over a 15, 20 year period because they used a professional. 
there's things that you can't take into account when you're using a professional versus yourself, right? So we're going to talk about limiting beliefs. We're going to talk about fears. We're going to talk about all those things. So if we're doing our own investing, every one of those things is 100% driving your decisions versus if you're working with a professional, they've seen it, they've done it, and they know how to uh, take what is a real fear like a risk versus something that's in our head that we're co we've conjured up for whatever reason wow. and apply it to your portfolio. Well, let's talk. Let's, that's a lovely segue. So what... What are some of the fears that you see? Not even so much in what I'm going to invest in, but I mean, I know myself personally, sometimes, you know, the fear, uh, there's a blocking thing of even looking at it. <laughs> like, you know. Well, there's a couple of things here. And I think there's a big one is coming in from society about where should we be? How much debt should I have? Where should I, how much investment should I have? What should my net worth be based on I'm 45 with two children, so how uh, how much should I have? And, you know, sometimes if we were to call that activity benchmarking, that can be instructive, but it can also be quite limiting. So the example I use sometimes in a lot of my presentations, Sam, I think you're going to like this. I put up a slide and it shows this doctor there, right? And I say, you know what? If you broke your arm, would you wait until it was healed before you went to see a doctor? Because this is what I hear all the time. I'm just going to fix my affairs up and get it sorted. Then I'll come see you. And I'm like, um, okay, but that's what I do, you know, right? <laughs> so it's that interesting mindset of I have to look a certain way before I can deal with a professional that can be quite a barrier to getting things going. Because I guarantee the right advisor has seen your situation so many times and can actually accelerate you through the bad times and get you into the good a lot faster. Oh my God, that is the same block we get. I just need to find more time. Okay. I just need to get this lodgement deadline done. And I'm going, right. exactly, the, uh, can I use your metaphor? Is that okay? Oh, it's a beautiful metaphor, is it? Yeah. Would you go to a doctor if you broke your arm? If you Would you go to the doctor when it's healed? No, of course not, because it'll heal like this. Yeah. And this is exactly, you know, what's happening in both situations. She said, we can get you there faster. Yeah, that's the whole point of working with a professional. You know, there's a, a good book that I've been following, and I think we talked about it in the green room, was the who, yeah. not how, right? Yes. Because um, the right who's, the right people in the right times will make us get us to our end destination way faster than we ever can on our own yeah and as as um as humans too we 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 really want that connection and you know having someone in your corner you've got to be careful on, on who you who you get and make sure that their values and everything aligns and you can spend some time with them because these are important players i think a lot of people yeah. approach experts as as a something on a spreadsheet Yes. But if you want someone working with your money, it, there's nothing more personal than business, money, and everything else. Make sure you connect with them. Mm -hmm. So that's why you need to look at so There's some people who are very good at what they do, but you might not connect with them. Don't worry about that. Go and find someone who is good at what they do and you do connect with because they'll be out there as well. Exactly. And any good professional will tell you that as well. Anyone worth their salt will say, That's right. we don't have a connection, but I think, you know, you should go over here. You know, Wendy would suit you a little bit better. Yeah, so that's an important play as well with the who piece. And I remember when I went to Arizona, you know, in 2019 and, and um, 
I heard that on stage from Ali Brown. She put it up and said, it's the who. And it just ricocheted through my body. And I just went, I don't have to do this on my own. I don't have to do this on my own. No, <laughs> that's right. And I think that there's also some other conditioning we have to get over is, is being understanding that being open and vulnerable about our money and the situations and I call it opening the financial kimono <laughs> to show everything because <laughs> so. you got to get financially naked, right? So you have to be super, super comfortable with that person. I like it, uh, client relationships, um, almost a little bit like a marriage, right? Cause you know, my, I have clients I've been with for, you know, almost the entire time I've been in the business. So you look at that, that's a 15 year relationship about your money. So it has to be a really good one. So your points are super good around that side for sure. The other thing I'd like to say that can hold us back sometimes too is um, unrealistic or goals that may not be your own. And I'm gonna I'm gonna blame social media a little on this. So I'm just gonna put them right on. I'm just okay. back, I'm driving the bus Drive right away. over them. Okay. So <laughs> that's the sound. That is the sound. <laughs> I'm driving over them. Um, and the reason I say that is. Um, I believe that so much on social media is this carefully curated five to 10% of our life that looks good. The interesting piece is what happens, and I've had clients in my office say to me, but so-and-so up the street can do X, Y, and Z, and I think I make more money than them. So what they're doing is they're setting their goals based on an unrealistic uh, picture of what others are doing versus just getting true with themselves and understanding deep at their core what's important to them. Not necessarily what your neighbor's doing, it's what's important to you. And if you're able to make that differentiation, I think it, it would be fantastic from a goal setting perspective, right? And it's so true. And, you know, people, um, we work a lot in businesses with this aligning the leader first to say, what do you want? Because if you're yeah. out of alignment all the time, yeah. that's where your exhaustion hits in as well. And it's the same with your personal aspect because I believe that we're human, so it, all our goals should merge, business, personal. And when did that happen? Yeah, we became human. We're human. We're not a spreadsheet, people. <laughs> yeah. And the business goals <laughs> and the personal goals have to link because you know we're the same person and if you're out of alignment you're over here making zillions and zillions of dollars because you know you think that's what you should do but you're not taking home enough to fuel this or vice versa or whatever it doesn't work and if you're going our oh, social media saying i should turn over two million dollars in my business and have this flash car personally mm -hmm. really i mean why <laughs> like let's just start questioning this stuff and i think social media i think it i think it was even happening keeping up with the joneses that term actually comes from the 60s where there was no social media so but i think social media has amplified that because now keeping up with the joneses used to be your neighbor now it's anybody you ever knew from the time you were two <laughs> <laughs> and can i tell you as an accountant and somebody who has seen a lot of people's financials and seen them outside. What they tell you on the outside is not even the tip of the iceberg. Just nothing. No, no. I have seen people who live a very flash lifestyle who have nothing. Just watch Inventing Anna. Exactly. <laughs> Just watch that right? show. It's, yeah. 
that is exactly, I call it sometimes that what they don't see is what's behind that curtain, mm. right? And in many cases, depending on the life, it may, it may not be real. It's not funded by cash. It's funded by debt. It's funded by debt and or in, friends or whoever. Also, on the flip yeah. side of that, some of the wealthiest people I know, the people who have a financial foundation that you wouldn't even believe, mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm not going to tell you because, you know, obviously we wouldn't tell people, are probably the people who you wouldn't think they were, were SWs. Yeah. I remember the one of the wealthiest clients I've ever worked with, he wore ripped up stubbies all the time. Like He was? Stubbies are shorts. Um, and, oh, okay. And he... He was from the from the from the what we call the bush, and he had millions. And I can tell you, he even had a broken tooth. I mean, he used to go into some of the most expensive places and be snot. And my gosh, he had some fun with it. But <laughs> he, you just yeah. you hear those stories all the time. But I can tell you, the people who have really what I call foundational fundamental wealth, you don't often know. Because they don't share it, they don't care yeah. what they they want. They've just developed, um, particularly if they've fought hard for it. They're very happy where where they are, and you don't know. So it's both ways. You just don't know. It's the same as you know when when you're you know that saying that you know treat everybody with kindness because you don't know what their story is. It's the same with their finances. You don't know what their story is, no matter what's put out. This episode is brought to you by the Aligned Leader, a six week program built to combat the leadership fatigue syndrome, so you can grow your business without the overwhelm. And I think that brings up another good point. Good advisor or good planner is going to come in and assume a couple of things that you, that, that you are, you are where you are. I, you know, that's all it is. So let's start from where you're at. Let's not, let's not shoot ourselves. Let's not worry about what happened. Let's not wish I was somewhere else. This is where you're at and it's okay. It's our starting point. And from there, we can build out the plans to solve problems that were from, are still there from before, but we can also start looking ahead, which I think is super important to look at. I'd like to go back a little bit to your comment about business and life and their intertwining and things like that. Um, I find it fascinating that sometimes people don't always look at their business as the funding vehicle for their life, right? A business at many levels is really something that you do a whole bunch of stuff and what's supposed to happen is cash comes out, right? And that cash <laughs> can be doing a bunch of things, but the first step is to uh, fund your life. And so I think it's important that people figure out what their ideal life is, price it out, and then they can see what that number is and understand, okay, based on my business structure, based on how I'm paying myself, all those things, this is what my business needs to do so that I can have the yes. life I want. Oh, thank you. Yes. And so, yeah, and I, I think you have to, uh, it's not a straightforward calculation sometimes. I'm, I feel like I, uh, I mush together balance sheets, profit and loss, and cash flow statements when I'm trying to come up with a top-line number for folks. But it's all of those things are, are important and need to be looked at. And, and you need to understand what your business needs to produce on a sales level, given the current expense structure, what can it then, then so that the rest of it kicks back out to you and what are you going to, how that's going to be used to fund your life. And I think that's important because it gives you a couple of things. One is 
a lot of us business owners are grinders, right? Hustle, grind, hustle, grind, hustle, like, you know, always want more, always want more. But if we knew that we only had to sell 10 widgets a month, and we've already sold 10, it's the 15th, do we have to push as hard? Could we give ourselves a little bit of a break? Yes, we're going to still keep doing important stuff, or maybe we're going to take a week off. You know, because I think also as entrepreneurs, we sometimes forget we are not in the efforts-based economy. We are in a results-based economy. Yeah. Right? We get paid for what we do or what we produce, what we sell, not how much time we tried putting it in to get it. That's an effort space. You know, if you're if you have employees, they're typically res, uh, rewarded or paid based on the number of hours that they put in. That's an effort based economy. And I think that's the whole we we call it the hours to dollar mindset um, mm. as well. And entrepreneurs, everybody has it. By the way, it's not just an expert who does get paid by the hour. But, you know, I've worked with entrepreneurs who are building programs who will also say, well, I've put in 40 hours, I expect this back. And it's going, well, it, it's a scaling thing. Yeah. Um, and our whole, you're right, And but all our clients are, uh, are paying for their results. They don't give a shit how much effort it is, but everything we base our, our pricing on, our worth on, and exactly. our I didn't do 16 hours today, I must be shit type mindset, which I have managed to whittle away at it's based on that it's a tough one it's a and, tough and that's one the but big I thing and it's i just love how you just connected that all the way through so we 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 work that because i mean we say of uh, the profit loss statement is a statement that tells you how much you can share how much you can find your lifestyle and after that how much you can share with your staff and everything it is not a document to produce tax returns like that's just not what it is and it's, it's your funding and how you get out of it and your balance sheets, the wealth that you can use in, in your business that can it then is an investment um, and then the cash flow statements funded. Um, mm-hmm. And I loved how you connected that. And then it's like you even went one step further and what do you need those numbers to be to fund this number over here? And then how can, much can you share? How much can when something happens in Ukraine, you can just shit the money, um, you know, yes. all of this sort of stuff. And two, to stop that grinding, that's killing us. Oh, absolutely. Because enough is never, nothing is ever enough. But there is enough. We are enough. If we don't know what the line yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. And we also have to be prepared that not everything, well, for some people it is, but I, I find most people, things aren't straight lined. So you're going to have good day, you know, you're going to have months that you make way more and m- months you make less, but they, you know, let's average them out and see how it comes out so that you're not, you're not uh, evaluating yourself in the wrong way. Story. Do you want to hear my story about trying to figure that out? Yeah. I figured out a while back that there's always two months of the year that I have really, really slow months. So I went back and analyzed it, hoping to figure out that it would be the same month so I could relieve that pressure. Unfortunately, it wasn't, but that would be something that if you are, there was different, like different months. Yeah. So it just, what weird things going on, maybe it was my efforts. I don't know, but there was these, there was no pattern. I was like, oh, I hope it's every May. Cause then I can just give myself, you know, permission to not worry because May's just going to be a shitty month. <laughs> so, but anyway, that's one of the things I've also done as well in trying to figure that stuff out is trying to relieve pressure on those things. 
Oh, yeah, because, I mean, the guys that we work with, I mean, December and all of those sort of times over here, it's a little different because we have our summer holidays over Christmas, so right. we double whammy that. And everyone kind of tends to back off, and that is the time that you want to take your break and stuff. Um, it's almost... Um, but then I, we've had great, great, yeah, you're right, great January, December, and we've had terrible ones. Um, yeah. And it, it just depends. Yeah, that you really need to work that out and then have that ebb and flow of mm. that because also we all have different styles of energies um, and, you know, women in particular, we flow. So I've worked out sort of on a monthly basis. I have two weeks where I'm creative and I'm having fun and two weeks not so good. Um, and we, we can, haven't got that down to an art. And I know the guys do it too. You know, the, when are you getting tired? When do you need to sit back? When, is, when are your kids playing tournaments? You know, yeah. when is all this? You can plan this and you can ebb and flow. And if you know those sales numbers, as you said, you have to connect the number that drives that mm. all the way back to that. Because by the time it hits your investment portfolio's cash flow or, or your funding or your P&L even, it's too late to change that that moment. But today, if you know what you need to do today to drive that number, it, it makes such a difference because you can actually start, stop and go, I can't do enough. And you know that. Exactly. We call those, um, we, we deal a lot, we talk a lot about lagging and predictive indicators. Um, so, you know, when I look at those apps online that tell us, you know, this is where you spent your money. I'm like, well, it's already done. It didn't actually present you that information in a way or at a time frame where you could actually change your decision. It's it's all added up and done. This is how much you owe now versus on your credit card or what have you. So understanding and knowing when the information is available to make a decision versus it's already been done is important, I think. Because I'm really... A profit and loss statement is is really a lagging indicator. A massive lagging indicator. Um, and then by that stage, it's t it, you should. It's your ultimate KPI in a business. But it's yeah. also too late to affect it. And then you're planning three months. Uh, you know, some, some cycles for businesses are longer than three months, but on average around about three months um, from from the day you make a decision. By the t And then that's you've got to know your numbers. If I do one network call... How long does that take to a discovery call? How do, how long does that then take to, on average, to this? How many do I convert? Is it something coming out of my network stronger than, you know, that's those sort of numbers? And it's taken me a long time as a person who loves to spend a lot of time on P&L balance sheets and how they work and, and how I can interpret and do all that sort of stuff um, to go, oh, they're the numbers I want to. But we can't, we, they take more time. Yes. But to figure out because they're not, they don't have debits and credits in them. So they're yes. not as measurable. They're not as predictable. But they're more important. They really, really are. Because if you're talking about your top line, let's go back to the 10 widget sale and, and line that back into what you were just saying. Is on the 10 widget sale, how many sales calls did you have to have to sell those? Oh, your close rate is 50%. That means you needed to have 20 calls to sell 10. Oh, well, how many activities prior to that did you need to do? Did you need to do 40 reach outs to have 20 phone calls to sell 10 widgets? Now you can start deriving your behaviors and your activities 
by starting with the lagging indicator, but working your way back to what had to happen for that lagging indicator to happen. Yeah. And even if you don't, if you work in expert style of businesses like tax accounting, I think the best, the, mm -hmm. the, the worst and the best of this, because, um, you know, the Canadian, what's the Canadian revenue? Um, CRA or IRS. CRA, yep. IRS. And here that CATO tells people that it's illegal not to do it. So we don't have to do the funnel work, do those. I mean, when back in the day, this, this stuffed me up. This, this is what really stuffed me up when I became more entrepreneurial and really wanted to do advisory because I never had to educate the market previously on why they need to come to me. It was illegal mm. for them not to. So right. that's a big jump. That, that is a great business model. That's helpful. It's you very helpful. See Sam. <laughs> Just go see Sam. You know, she'll make sure you stay out of jail. That's very powerful. Um, so you get rid of all the marketing. You sometimes you get rid of the sales because they don't actually understand what they do to a certain extent. And most of them have been with us for very long periods of time because it's it's kind of like going to the dentist and every every tax account's painful. Uh, there's stats on that, people. <laughs> there's stats on that. Seventy uh twenty-five percent of Americans would rather go to get a root canal than go to their tax account. Well, bad stat yeah. people, bad stat. There are Anyhow. there are some terrible uh, um, established profiles of there are. folks who go into that account. But let, let's move on from that. But that's the problem is that. But then even in that, when we're working with tax, we're, we're working in those accounts to try to shift that. We shift it. It's that okay. So when a client's work comes in, how long does it take for you to get it to invoice? Okay, let's mm -hmm. step back. What's the biggest problem? So can we speed that up? Oh, when the client work comes in, you just start your job. Well, don't start it until you got all the information. That can increase 20 to, we can increase 20 to 40% in bottom line just on wow. making sure the information's in. So what that does though, yes, it makes you more efficient and more profitable, gives you more time during the day, as long as you don't put more tax returns in. But then it starts that muscle of, okay, now I want to go and do other stuff because eventually that work will go. I don't care what anyone says, but it will one day, saying 15 years. Then you can start saying, okay, well, I need to get, use that planning muscle to say I need to go and get different styles of businesses. I need to do more tax planning. I need to do more tax structuring. That All that work requires education to the client as to why they need it. Like in your business, yeah. in financial planning, you have to educate people why they need to come to you. Mm -hmm. And that takes time. But in some businesses, you don't. So then you have to be aware of that. So these are all the lead indicators that you need to know to drive your income. And just because you haven't had it before, mm. Mm. it's so much more. And you don't have to have it. You, it is so much more powerful if you start this muscle going. Because when you shift your styles of businesses, you'll have that. Yeah. And also for your personal, what's the indicators there that you need to spend time on it? You know, maybe it's, I mean, I try to spend an hour a week. I don't, but I, this is my goal. This small amount on where all my insurance is at, where am I spending some money? You know, what what is that? Because there is so much money just going to, going out there that you doesn't need to. I call it um, leaks in the bucket, right? And also, um, I have very few conspiracy theories in me, but Sam, I have one uh, for sure. And that is that the entire world more and more is being set up to suck money out of our wallets when we're not looking. <laughs> and so I call it unconscious spending. <laughs> right? So, 
you know, you wouldn't think about those MasterCard ads from what, five, six years ago. Oh, this trip costs this much, this much, you know what I mean? And then the, but the memories are priceless. Yes. Except for the fact, if you leave it on your credit card for four to six months to pay it off and all the interest you paid on that. Right. So I think that the, like, there's more and more, um, in Canada, we have the tap to spend now. Um, and yeah. And you know, the studies show that it's an unbelievable majority of people, if you talk to them in the parking lot after they've made that purchase, cannot tell you how much they spent. It's not registering in your mind. There are studies that show that if you use plastic to complete a purchase, your decision-making criteria and the things you consider when making that purchase are different than if you use cash. So there's what has become convenience is actually harmful to us at some points unless you can build up a system and a structure that makes you conscious of what you're doing and gives you some lines in the sand as i call it or a fence that you can be aware of where you are all the time and i think too to extend that not just the tapping so i must admit apple pay i like that because it tells you immediately it sends you a ping and says mm -hmm. This is what's paid. And um, I use a bank called Westpac. It does the same thing now. I don't know if that's a new thing, but it, it tells you how much you just spent. So at least you can you can see that. And, and I agree with you, but it's very, you can't, like COVID got rid of cash over here. One of the things I'm seeing, not just the tapping, is actually like the Netflix subscriptions, the stands subscriptions, all of those things. Oh, it's convenient paying your insurance monthly, just letting it all come out, all this stuff. And suddenly you're kind of, you know, one of your wages a week is going on subscriptions, like not, not being conscious of what's going through your accounts as a convenience. Absolutely. I almost think it's a bigger problem on the business side than the personal side when you come to those things, right? Because I think we are more looking for systems and processes. We'll try, you know, there's probably more free subscriptions. They're trying to get us to try software. They're trying to get us to try something else um, that, mm. you know, uh, continue on past the free period because we're not paying attention. I call that donating. We're donating to those companies. So I actually recommend usually a quarterly, but a minimum of every six months that you comb through your credit card bills and make sure okay, yes, these are all valid. Yes, I still use them. And if you're not using them, get rid of them. Oh, it's audible books for me. Like, you know, and then it's like, well, I'm going to pause it and you can only pause it once. And now I've got five credits. Just go and buy the fucking credits and get rid of it. Like, you know, it is much cheaper because I used to, but I used to eat audible books because I used to travel all the time. And now because I'm not traveling, I'm not, I like to read, uh, you know, as opposed because I can sit down, can't read while I drive or whatever. But there's a whole lot of things like that and they add up like they really add up and then they increase. They really and the other one do. that caught us that you've got to be mindful of all this is, you know, we switched from um, go to meetings to zoom. Go to meetings has a 12 month contract. Like you, you've got to give them that much. And I just went, how did we miss that? That's huge. And we couldn't get out of it because you know, when you, when you sign up for subscriptions like that, read the fine print always. as well, particularly always. That's, I mean, that's rude. That, that was very rude. I actually took too much task on that one, but, um, didn't do me any good, but made me feel better. But, <laughs> um, but it's like, and they're right. 
all the terms and conditions and everything are there on all these things, but they they give you seven or, or yeah, it, and it's click, 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 and we're designed to click, click, and somewhere along the line. And cash is exactly, you used to have $200 in your account, in your cash, in your purse when you went, got paid, paid everything, and that's how much I had to spend if I ran out too bad, so sad on eBay brains. But now it's like, oh, I'll just, you can even do it with your, um, my coffee comes every month off Amazon. <laughs> now that is good. Well, you've saved 10 to 15% on that though, because <laughs> you subscribe. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, you definitely have to evaluate. I see that a fair amount, you know, and if we translate that back into the business side of things, and if we could go here for just a second, yeah. When we get business loans, I don't think people always pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I see in particular is personal guarantees. Mm -hmm. And then when you do a personal guarantee, you need to revisit your life insurance because that person's going to take priority over who the life insurance may be going to, depending on the rules. But it's something to be aware of that could cause problems down the road. So if you got a personal guarantee on... Your business then your estate has a then your estate has a personal guarantee. So depending on how it's beneficiaried, how it flows, it's just something to be aware of about um, to make sure of that, you know. And that's just a good thing overall in business as well. Um, I was out with my accountant yes on uh, Friday for breakfast, and we were talking about personal guarantees. And he said he knew a a, comp a person who had um, sold his company, and five years later uh, found out that the truck that he had sold with the business, which he had personally guaranteed the loan on, they had stopped making payments and they came after him for the whole amount. He says, but I sold the company, but you personally guaranteed the loan. Yeah. And that happens here too. And these are the things that sometimes, you know, you don't control and stuff. And I think, and if you do have advisors and they have given you advice on that, you do then have some recourse for that sort of stuff. But that's a bit like our, go-to thing it's just missed and you know there was a whole inquiry on that so I think the awareness I think that goes back to what you said before we have to start getting a little more conscious of where we're spending money and then looking at the balance sheet the P&L and going well I hit my targets but I'm not making the net profit that I thought my favorite line of an accounting is that sales is a vanity number <laughs> yeah right Oh, I can't wait. I need to get to seven figures. You get to seven figures and you're losing money. Why? Because you spent more money getting that $1 million in sales than you actually sold. These are things that happen a lot. You talked about people going under, even though their business appears successful, they may have scaled too quickly. They may have, um, you know, their customer acquisition costs, if they're not on top of those, you know, if a client is worth 10000 and you're spending 11000 to get them, like, honestly, you how do you know if you haven't done the work on your numbers to figure out what that is? I'll spend 5000 to get a $10,000 client all day yeah. long because the return is worth yeah. it. And I think that's important. And I think that's important across the whole thing because in the personal side that you work in, the return on saving a dollar today to when you need it when you're 75, actually that's what I really want to, when you're however old, is exponentially more valuable than, you know, saving $10 in your business today because it doesn't have the longer, it doesn't have the compounding effect. Um, so this is mindful. 
I also want to note here, everybody who's listening, what we just discussed feels overwhelming. But the good thing is you can just step it through again. You know, like I was talking with the tax things is go sit down and say, this is all the information I need and plan it out over a year. That's why I, I spend a little bit of time. I have a look at my subscriptions once a month. I have a look at this and I have a look at that because you can't do everything in a day and just know where your biggest bang for your buck is, you know, and work through it. I can tell you from my recent experiences, have a look at your insurances. <laughs> oh my God. Right. That's important. They're so important. It's such a, such a necessary expense, but yeah. you can be overinsured just as easily. You can be underinsured. And as your life changes, your kids go off to school, you pay off your mortgage, you do things like that. That changes how much insurance you need uh, from a life perspective to make sure that everything's going to be okay when you're gone. Well, this has been amazing. We didn't even get to pre, can we just quickly go on the pre preconceived um, notion. I just mentioned it. This whole thing around 65 years as someone who's closer to that than they are 40, um, 35, actually 35. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. I agree with you. Like there's this, um, almost like goalpost for most people that's been established for years and years and years. Uh, it was first established by a German <laughs> and it wasn't even 65, but then it got raised to 65. And what's interesting is that was back when life expectancy was maybe 70, right? So you had five good years where you didn't work. Um, whereas now life expectancies continue to go and go and go. And I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I realize that certain ages aren't old. Not old at all. They're not old anymore. Like, you know, and so I think that we have to get, it's a little bit about being in tune with yourself about knowing, do you want to ease into slowing down from work? Do you want to have a hard stop? Do you never want to stop? Like you got to know yourself um, and start avoiding whatever society expects of you or says that you should do. And I think it's important. Um, last comment I'll make is too, is we, I was talking to you about my power number, Sam, and that's the natural evolution of knowing when you hit this number yeah. you're working because you want to not because you have to because there's something about that power of choice that anytime you can say i'm done with this and ease yourself into retirement versus always thinking that you have to keep working and i think sometimes as entrepreneurs yeah. we can fall into that trap we can also fall into the trap of i'm just going to work one more year so that i can get more money for my business but do you need to? Fantastic question. So I think by knowing these numbers, again, when is enough enough? And if I'm going to continue to work, is it worth it? Oh man, I think that is such, I usually ask for tips, but I think, can we just leave it at that? I think if you can just take one thing from this conversation, that. that last sentence, when is enough enough? And do you need to? I think that was beautiful. So Wendy, where can people find you? Oh my gosh. Well, um, one of the things I have a, a gift for your listeners. Oh, fantastic. Um, we have a wealth diagnostic tool for business owners that is free and online at www.totalwealthscore.com. And so they can go in and just do an assessment because um, it, it measures three things to decide, do you have the foundations to start building your wealth? It's not about how much do you have. It's about what's your mindset? Do you have the systems? Do you have the actions going on to get yourself set up? 
Fantastic. Um, we'll also pop that into the show notes. Um, so have a crack at it. I've done it myself. It's very valuable. Um, and I think it, it teaches you a lot. If there's one thing I know, mindset is such a key issue um, mm. as well. Um, and it just takes away some of the suffering that we, we do around numbers and do we have enough or don't we have enough or whatever that is that goes on in our internal dialogue. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, more, more, more. It's not true, people. Um, anyhow, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. So thank you. Thank you for having me. This is a wonderful conversation. Fantastic. And everyone else, as always, stay brave and continue the conversation. Thank you so much for your time. We work super hard on this podcast and are passionate about helping expert entrepreneurs build businesses without overwhelm. To help us, can you please leave a review if you loved it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform?